online will hear this so they don't miss it and come back next week and look for it. Next week, one week from tonight, say one week, say next Wednesday, say I will not be here, but then say, but I will be in church Thursday and Friday in Kansas City. Eh, Not as many people said that. Well, if there is a world-class evangelist with, uh, with uh, sectional mass choirs and great praise teams and uh, worship with brothers and sisters in the Lord within 35, 40 minutes of your house and you choose not to come, that's up to you. But uh, I would definitely make it a point to be there. Um, next week, we're not going to have service because it's the first year in Missouri that we've been here that there's regional camp meetings. So there's four of them. Ours is next week at the Life Church in, on Viewhide Drive. That's information's on the website, in the bulletin. And uh, Brother Victor Jackson, the evangelist Victor Jackson, is going to be preaching. It's going to be awesome. Um, and that's next Thursday night at 7. When, uh, Friday morning, if you can break away or sneak away from work, or if you don't work, 10 a.m. And then Friday night is 7 p.m. Friday night, there's also a children's crusade, so there'll be a great service for kids, too, that you'll want to get them to. Um, So if you're tuning in online and you've been tuning in online, don't come here next week because we won't pick this series back up for two weeks. Uh, That's when we'll jump back into this, but I'm excited for a camp meeting. Two weeks ago, we launched a series on the tabernacle. Week one was an introductory introduction to the cross and the construction and the dimensions of the tabernacle. Last week, week two, was how the entire plan points to the cross and the door that opened, Jesus opened by the cross and what he did. If you missed the first two lessons, I do suggest going back and listening to them because you will want to get the, the, the crux of it. That You'll want to go ahead and get that uh, before you move on um, with the rest of the series. So tonight, the tabernacle and our approach to God, and we're going to talk about this big old thing right here. That I know is off-centered. Is that bothering any? I know that's bothering some people. That's off-centered. And I apologize, but we want to leave room for people to walk here. Otherwise, the praise team would have to walk down into the altar of sacrifice, and they might get uncomfortable with that. So, uh, So tonight we're talking about the altar of sacrifice. Let's pray. Jesus, we love you, God. You are great. We just got done singing about it. You are Great and greatly to be praised. Thank you for your goodness, grace, mercy, strength, wisdom, direction. God, for your spirit, for the blood of Calvary that you hear our prayers. We have so much to be thankful for tonight, God. And you are good and we love you in Jesus' name. Amen. So as I've been mentioning in the first two weeks of the series, this, this was the actual size of the brazen, or the brazen altar of sacrifice. Based on the layout, I said this, I'll say it again, this should be... Because if this is the tent, and those poles back there are the actual tent, this would be in the foyer. Our foyer just can't house this big old tabernacle right here. The dimensions are five by five by three cubits. Well, that's about seven and a half feet by seven and a half feet by four and a half feet. And so um, that this is about that size. And the dimensions uh, are, are pretty exact. But... The altar of sacrifice would be the very first thing that you came when you came into the outer court of the tabernacle. This would be the first thing that you faced, the very first thing. And Exodus 27 gives us a description of this. It says, using acacia wood, construct a square altar. And I don't think this is acacia wood, but like I said, nobody's dying for this one. We even had to carry that through, and we carried it upside down, and a woman helped me carry it. That wasn't allowed in the Old Testament, but we, we, we're we just doing, we're making do, amen, and we're thanking God we're living under grace. But it says, make horns for each of its four corners so that the horns in the altar are all one piece. Overlay the altar with bronze, make ash buckets, shovels, basins, meat forks, and fire pans all of bronze. Make a bronze grating for it. Attach four bronze rings in its four corners. Install the grating halfway down the side of the altar under the ledge. For carrying the altar, make poles from acacia wood and overlay them with bronze. Insert the poles through the rings on the two sides of the altar. The altar must be hollow, made from planks. Build it just as you were shown on the mountain. 
So we didn't follow all that, but you got the dimensions. So that middle section, it had no bottom structure. Halfway down, it had that mesh grate that would go across, and that held the wood for burning of the sacrifice. And under the grate was built up earth on which the altar rested, so it would set up above the, the rest of the courtyard. All four corners had a triangular horn shape. Ours has two, but all four would have it. The horns were to help in securing the animal sacrifice to the altar. In Exodus 29, when instructions were given for the sin offering of a bullock, uh, Aaron and his sons were to put the blood on the horns of the altar with their finger and the, the pour, then pour the remaining blood on the ground beside the bottom of the altar. You can imagine how messy this would be. You, know, you imagine this, this animal up there, and then you're taking the blood and putting it on the horns and pouring the blood out on the ground. This is what happened daily, multiple times a day. And so some say the four corners, uh, the four horns on the four corners represent the four corners of the earth. The word altar appears 434 times in King James text. Though there may have been altars before then, the first mention we have in scripture of an altar was Genesis 8 when Noah builds an altar after the floodwaters receded. Then we read about Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. They all built altars. These altars were built of dirt and stone. They they were meant to stand in a particular place and commemorate uh, a specific time and event. These other altars that these men built, those altars were not meant to be portable like this altar. They were to stand as memorials to everyone who came across them would ask what they stood for. We, re- re- we read all throughout scriptures where altars were set up and it says, and, the, and this stands there to this day. That's because as we've gotten the word, sometimes in some cases, the Bible was not written by eyewitness accounts. I, I wonder if that shocks anybody here. I mean, Moses wrote Genesis, but you know Moses wasn't there for Genesis. So what happens is, at least not the first part, so what happens is, is Jewish tradition was so strong in oral tradition and written tradition that it was handed down, and then God God knew what he was doing. Oh, Moses, this poor kid, he gets raised in Egyptian uh, pagan culture and everything, and he, but, but along the way, Moses got learned in all the wisdom and deeds of Egypt. He knew how to write. He knew how to compile. He understood history. He understood military. He understood construction. All the things that God was instilling in him for what he was calling him to do later. You might be in the middle of a trial right now, and God is putting things in your life for what he has planned for you in just a few years. And Moses, he God, and he had his word passed down, and, and, and look at jo- Joshua chapter 4, verse 1. It says, when all the people crossed the Jordan, this is later, the Lord says to Joshua, now choose 12 men, one from each tribe. Tell them, take 12 stones from the very place where the priests are standing in the middle of the Jordan, because they had just walked through, and the Jordan River went, and I mean, that's just awesome. That happened multiple times. I'd like to see just the Missouri River just up and, you know, just walk through on dry ground. How cool would that be? Carry them out, he says. And so Joshua called 12 men together, and one from each tribe. And he said, go into the middle of Jordan in the front of the ark, the ark of the covenant, because they were carrying it later at that time. And each of you pick up a stone, put it on your shoulder, 12 stones from each tribe. We're going to use these stones to build a memorial, build an altar. In the future, your children will ask you, what do these stones mean? Then you can tell them, remind us. They remind us that the Jordan River stopped flowing. When the ark of the Lord's covenant went across, these stones will stand as a memorial among the people of Israel forever. So the men did as Joshua commanded them. They took 12 stones from the middle of the Jordan River, one for each tribe. And Joshua, like he had told Joshua, the Lord. And so they they carried them to the place where they camped for the night and constructed the memorial there. Joshua also set up another pile of 12 stones in the middle of the Jordan at the place where the priests who carried the ark of the covenant were standing. And they're there to this day. In other words, that last phrase shows us this was not written on the spot. This was written later because it says those stones in that story are there to this day. You wouldn't have wrote that at noon and it happened at nine in the morning and said, and those stones are still there to this day. Be a little weird. 
But when it comes to altars, though generally set apart or built for offering of sacrifices, in some instances, they appear, altars appear to be only for memorials. Yet this Old Testament tabernacle, the animal sacrifice and the bloodshed, it was vital. It was not just a memorial. This was a place of sacrifice. Leviticus 17, 11 says, for the life of the body is in the blood. I have given you the blood on the altar to purify you, making you right with the Lord. It is the blood given in exchange for a life that makes purification possible. In that chapter, he's talking about not eating blood. And so yesterday, I was blessed to be able to eat a steak, and I cut into it, and all that juice came out. Thank you. That, I thought so, too. All that juice came out. The life is in the blood. They couldn't eat it back then, and thank God I'm not in the Old Testament. Peter had a dream. The Gentiles were able to be saved, and we were able to eat filet mignon. Thank you, God. Man, oh man, somebody's as hungry as I am. Even in the New Testament, the life's in the blood. Hebrews 9.22, it says, in fact, according to the law of Moses, nearly everything was purified with blood. Without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness. Now, the writer of Hebrews is writing this to people who were thinking about going after the cross of Calvary, after Jesus shed his blood, to go back into animal sacrifice. He's saying, listen, the blood is absolutely vital, just like what you're thinking. But you don't need to kill an animal anymore. See, God said that without the shedding of blood, there's no remission. But the blood, of, the blood sacrifice was the life of innocent victims receiving death so someone or something else could go free. The sacrificial offering was a substitutionary atonement. The innocent victim would receive the full weight of God's judgment, while the guilty animal making the sacrifice uh, would receive forgiveness and justification. So the animal would get the, that would become the substitutionary atonement, and then whoever put it there, that became the scapegoat, and I got free, at least till the next sacrifice. The sacrifice literally became sin, and therefore... That sacrifice took my sin, and that's why it was called a sin offering. There are three types of voluntary offerings in the Old Testament, burnt offering, grain offering, and peace offering. But the sin and trespass offerings were mandatory offerings. We see this take place after two of Aaron's four sons. He's got four sons. Two of them die because they disobey God. They offer strange fire, and God strikes them dead. And then what does he do? He calls for a sin offering. Leviticus 16 tells us about it. The Lord spoke to Moses after the death of Aaron's two sons who died after they entered the Lord's presence and burned the wrong kind of fire before him. The Lord said to Moses, warn your brother Aaron not to enter the most holy place behind the inner curtain whenever he chooses. If he does, he'll die. For the ark's cover, the place of atonement is there, and I myself am present in the cloud above the atonement cover. When Aaron enters the sanctuary area, he must follow these instructions fully. He must bring a young bull for a sin offering. There's sin in the family, sin in the camp. You have to put the animal sacrifice on there, and that becomes the sin. That's why it's called a sin offering. Bring the sin offering, he says, and a ram for a burnt offering. He must put on his linen tunic and undergarments worn next to his body. and he, he has all these sacred garments and bathe himself. But then verse 5, Aaron must take from the community of Israel two male goats for a sin offering and a ram for a burnt offering. And then check out verse 6. Aaron will present his own bowl as a sin offering to purify himself and his family, making them right before the Lord. Even when you're called into ministry, even when you're the high priest, as Aaron was, the highest office in Levitical priesthood. God will still always tell you to take care of your family first. Family before the rest of the community. In verse 7, then he must take two male goats and present them to the Lord at the entrance of the tabernacle. We see these sin offerings all throughout the entire Old Testament. Millions of, millions of gallons of blood were shed as animals were offered as substitutionary atonement. The blood of the innocent animals were that substitute for the blood that, that 
that should have been shed for our own sin. We're already ahead. All right. It should have been said, shed for our own sin. But when God took on flesh, look what John the Baptist says when Jesus steps on the scene. He says, John 1, 29, Behold the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sin of the world. People in the vicinity would have known that John was making a deep theological statement with just that one sentence because they're all still practicing this way of living now they had the temple it wasn't uh it wasn't a portable altar anymore but it was that same concept they were offering animals and sin offering and john says hey behold the lamb of god which takes away the sin of the world that was rich because he was saying what hey the animals that we talk about there and the, the sin offerings, and it, none of those animals actually took away the sin of the world. They became a substitute. They, they were the ones that were a scapegoat. They just pushed it off till the next offering. But, but right there when John says, hey, the, the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world, he's the one that is the spotless Lamb that will take care of it once and for all. He was really introducing an entirely new plan for salvation with one sentence, with one statement. The Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. A whole new system. Just like many people, though, today don't like change. Well, they probably didn't either. But this is why John became known as the forerunner to Christ, the person that paved the way for this new message. When Jesus Christ died and became the sacrificial lamb, he rose again after that. His sacrifice was once and for all. The Old Testament altar and the ceremonial law was done away with. And 1 Peter 1.18 says, For you know that God paid a ransom to save you from the empty life you inherited from your ancestors. And it was not paid with mere gold or silver, which lose their value. It was the precious blood of Christ, the sinless spotless lamb of God. In the New Testament, people who were thinking about going back into animal sacrifice rather than trusting their future to Christ and the blood of Christ, Hebrews 9.22 talked about without the shedding of blood, there's no remission. But 28 says, so also Christ was offered once for all time as a sacrifice to take away the sins of many people. He will come again, not to deal with our sins, but to bring salvation to all who eagerly are waiting for him. And look what the writer goes on to say in Hebrews 13.10. We have an altar. There it, is, there it is again. We have an altar from which the priests in the tabernacle have no right to eat. Because they're thinking about going back, and he's going, listen, you're, you're, you're elevating these priests and wanting to go back. We got something they can't even touch. We have an altar. He says, under the old system, the high priest brought the blood of the animals into the holy place, which is the tabernacle, as a sacrifice for sins. And the bodies of the animals were burned outside the camp. So also, Jesus suffered and died outside the city gates to make people holy by means of his own blood. He, he was taken outside the city of Jerusalem. And, and he compares this, this writer compares this to what was going on in the Old Testament tabernacle. And he says, for this world is not our permanent home. We're looking forward to a home yet to come. See, the altar of sacrifice demonstrated to the Israelites and to us today. It always pointed to Christ, even when they didn't realize it. But we see this now, but this demonstrates not only to them, but to us. It was in the outer court, the very first step of the tabernacle, the first step for sinful men and women to approach God is for there to be a cleansing blood by someone who is innocent. That is exactly what took place, and that is why we no longer have to offer animals. Just as the Israelites were com uh, commanded to offer animal without spot or blemish, Christ became the Lamb of God without any, any blemish or any spot. And just as there were cords to bind the Old Testament sacrifice to that altar, there were nails to bind the sacrifice to the cross. The Lord knew we would need a Savior. 
From the beginning of time, God's plan for redemption required a shedding of blood. Revelation 13.8 says that Christ was slaughtered from the foundation of the world. The purpose for that brazen altar was that it was the first stop in the court of the tabernacle. It was a, a place of sacrifice so that redemption would be possible. It was the place where the price of sin was paid. But now we look at this personal application. See, because you have to understand that whole picture. To understand that it points to Calvary and Calvary points to us. So how does this influence our prayer and our approach to God? How can we, how can this first stop of the tabernacle affect our approach to Christ? Even though Jesus became the ultimate sacrifice and took away our sin, this does not eliminate the need for daily repentance and having repentant hearts on a daily basis. As you and I come into the presence of God with songs and praise and thanksgiving, see, because it was David who wrote, I will enter his gates with thanksgiving, into his courts with praise. Because why? That gate of the tabernacle, that you would come through that with worship unto the Lord. So the moment you knew, if I'm coming to the tabernacle, it wasn't to throw a football around. If I was coming to the tabernacle, it was not to just, you know, chat with friends or see uh, the remodel at the, the, the temple. I was coming to that outer court and I was saying, I'm coming here with a plan. I'm coming here with a purpose. I'm coming here with a direction in mind. And so when you come into the, to the church or you even wake up in your day, that you go through that gates into a time of prayer with the Lord, it starts with praise. I'm going to enter his gates with thanksgiving, into his courts with praise. When they came in that outer court, there was praise on their lips. But then they came face to face with the altar of the sacrifice. And this is a place where we must immediately, the first thing, oh, I'm coming in to talk to the Lord. The first thing after praise is we must recognize our need for a Savior. We cannot move forward without acknowledging His bloodshed. It's a place of humility, a place of death, a place of dying out. Paul says, I protest by your rejoicing, which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord. He says, I die daily. The Lord cannot save us if we think we're a people who don't need saving. The Lord can't save us if we think we're a people that don't need saving. I recently took a marketing class where the director said, do not tell people God wants to change their lives. People no longer feel like their lives need changing. Instead, use the word improve because everyone today wants to improve. And so we do that somewhat in our website because I understand we're trying to reach our community. But here's the problem. Repentance requires changing. Repentance requires changing. So we come into the presence of God. If, if you tonight are unwilling to change your journey with Christ stops at step one. There is no table of showbread. There is no brazen labor. There is no Ark of the Covenant where God will commune with you. If you are not open to change and there's no desire for change there, your journey with Christ stops at step one. We can no longer get any closer to the power, presence, and manifestation of the Spirit if at step one we are unwilling to die out to self. He cannot redeem us if we do not bring to Him our need for redemption. So we enter His gates with thanksgiving and into His courts with praise, and now we approach this altar, this place of repentance, humility, crying out to God, recognizing our need for Him. It's here at this brazen altar of sacrifice, the step of prayer immediately after we enter the thanksgiving in the outer court. It's here we come face to face with our sinfulness and God's holiness. He hears our prayers of repentance. He applies his own blood to the sacrifice just as he did with Aaron and his sons in the Old Testament sacrifice. 
And then after all, now that Christ became the ultimate sacrifice, do you know what the sacrifice is now in the 21st century? It's you and it's me. That's why Paul writes and he says, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, present your bodies as a living sacrifice. You put yourself on the altar, but it's not a seven and a half by seven and a half by four and a foot half, and we're doing human sacrifice. That's not what it is. Everything went from physical to spiritual. That's why he says, oh, hey, you commit adultery. Here's what's But now in the New Testament, if you even look on a woman, it becomes spiritual. He says, hey, there was a literal sacrifice with an animal, and you laid on the, the fire. Now we're, now we're the sacrifice, and we lay ourselves on the altar. But it's a spiritual concept, and he says, holy, acceptable. It's everything I'm asking. It's, it's everything God's asking is your reasonable service. But be not conformed to this world. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Our bodies are the sacrifice now. But not the literal killing or mutilation. It's, it's living a consecrated, separated life from the world and unto God. But if we're unwilling to live consecrated, if there are parts of our lives that we're holding on to in secret, then we're really not laying ourselves on the altar as we come into a time of prayer. If there are certain things that we say, I'm going in the presence of God, I'm going to go talk to the Lord, but we come face to face after worship with that time of sacrifice where we're supposed to lay the things on the altar. They're supposed to die out to self, repent, lay it down. But we know that there are things in our lives that we're not going to lay down. I'm not talking about someone that says, I messed up, I made a mistake, I sinned. Oh, I shouldn't come back to God because he'll never accept me. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about those of us that are walking in knowing full well that I don't intend to lay down what I'm hiding. I'm not laying it down. I'm not ready to give it up. I'll serve God in this manner, this manner, this manner. That is off limits, and I'm not giving him that. That's a problem. Because then we're not really laying the sacrifice on the altar. Nowhere. That's like going back to the Old Testament and having the bull and saying, oh, man, that would make good meat. I'll tell you what. God called for this bull. I'm going to cut off the chest and two legs and throw that on the altar. God would have never accepted that sacrifice. God doesn't demand perfection from you, but he does demand obedience. And if he's calling for a living sacrifice, then I don't want to lay part of my heart on there and keep the other stuff hidden and say, eh, I don't, I'm not ready to give that part. So we have to understand the imperative of prayerful repentance. There must be a depth and honesty to our repentance at the brazen labor as we enter into his presence. The psalmist understood the immense value of open communication as with God as you approach his altar. Psalm 66, 18 says, if I had not confessed the sin in my heart, the Lord would not have listened. But God did listen. He paid attention to my prayer. Praise God who did not ignore my prayer, withdraw his unfailing love from me. When you come into an altar of sacrifice and you're willing to, to lay it all out for God, God, I'm sorry. Here's what I've done. Here's what I'm dealing with. Here's what's in my heart. Here's what's on my mind. I want to be a living sacrifice, God. I want to get close to you. Yes, I want to go into the, I want to go into the holiest of holies. I want to commune with you. But before I commune with you, before I go another step in this process, the first thing I got to do is I got to die out to self. I've already praised and worshiped you as I came through the gates. But right now, God, I need to lay some things down in this altar that I don't want to pick back up. 
And as we study these various pieces of furniture that were placed in this wilderness dwelling place for the God of Israel, we must note the obvious tonight, the brazen laver or the brazen altar is way bigger than any other piece of furniture here. We put so much emphasis on this. But Brother Keith, Addison, Brother Addison, come on up here, please. Come on. Carry this down for me, please. It's amazingly heavy. Be very careful. Just kidding. You guys know if you didn't carry that right, you'd be struck dead, right? Okay. Go put it down in there. Go put that down there. Brother Chad, Brother James, come on up here, please. Can you guys grab that? One of you can grab the altar. One of you can grab that pillar right there. Move it all the way to the front. Just go ahead and grab that. Pick it up, it'll fold up. Or you could do it together and it won't fold up. Based on the dimensions given in Scripture, you can check it out when you come up to pray in a moment. We could probably fit another Ark of the Covenant in here. Every single piece of the entire tabernacle, every piece of furniture could fit easily inside the, uh, the altar. Oh, what a sweet smelling savor, that altar of incense. Oh, the table of showbread, Jesus was the bread of life, what nourishment. Oh, I just want to get into the presence and the power of God and the Ark of the Covenant. Don't always long for the next step when the first step is sacrifice because there's a reason why the altar of sacrifice where blood was shed is far bigger than anything else in the tabernacle. Because if you're skipping the sacrifice, if you're skipping repentance, if you're skipping being the living sacrifice, holy, separated, sanctified, consecrated, Unto the Lord. Then you're missing the single biggest part of the whole journey. We live in a world where commitment and consecration is a dying art. People want small altars and oversized arcs. Yet God's plan, we see big altars for repentance in the holiest of holies to be a place of intimacy rather, rather than grandeur. No person, place, or thing, or struggle is too large to be placed on this altar. There's no sin that God, that you can lay on that altar that he can say, ah, I, I can't forgive that. No matter what is placed on the altar, it can be consumed by the fire of God. You might think your sin is just too great. It cannot possibly be covered by the blood. But the Bible says in Isaiah 53, 5, but he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him. And with his stripes, we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord hath laid on him the iniquity of all of us. You know what I love? The last few words of that. The iniquity of all of us. That does not allow for any exceptions. On Jesus Christ was laid 
the iniquity of every single one of us, both here and watching in online, that there is, there's no verbiage there that says everybody, everybody's included. There's no verbiage that leaves anybody out. Not only was this massive altar the largest piece of furniture, but it was the most frequently used item. It was only once a year that the priest would come in without, with the blood into the holiest of holies. It's only once a year. This ornate, beautiful piece of furniture. One time a year. We laugh. That's like growing up in Wisconsin. If you had an in-ground swimming pool in Wisconsin, you were filthy rich. You were filthy rich. Because you got to use the thing maybe a month out of the year. That's it. That's it. You had money if you had an in-ground pool. Then you moved to California. And you go to California, you're like, your, your, your pool is bigger than your house, and you, everybody's got a pool. But here, the Ark of the Covenant, one time a year. But the altar of sacrifice, every single day, morning and evening, the priest would enter. And every single day, throughout the day, they would offer sacrifices at this altar. We're getting ready to come to an altar tonight. Not just an altar call for service, but a literal altar of repentance. And we can begin to say, God, burn out everything that is not like you. If I'm the living sacrifice, then I want to lay myself on that altar. You could read, I believe, Psalm 53, one of the most beautiful prayers of repentance in the midst of one of the most horrible sins in the Bible. And Nathan calls out David, and David says, create in me a clean heart. Renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not from your presence. Restore to me the joy of my salvation. As we come past that place of praise, which we opened up with praise tonight, but before we leave, that we can just a moment here, just find a place to where we lay ourselves on that altar as a living sacrifice and say, God, how do you say it? Well, there's no prayer to read. You're not going to say it like I do, but I might say, Lord, cleanse me again. That blood that is still flowing from Calvary. I can still imagine it running down those hills, just like there in the dust of the Middle Eastern desert. They'd put a little blood from the sacrifice and the horn of the altar, and the rest would be spilled out onto a dusty ground. Just like that, the Lamb of God that took away the sin of the world was nailed to a cross, and his blood was just poured out down a rugged, rough cross and just went down into the dust of the ground on a hillside. And so when I come, I think about that and see that blood that's still running. It's still alive. It's still powerful. Wash my life. Not just the stuff people can see. Get into the cracks and corners and crevices the cobwebs that I've gathered up in there, get it out, remove it, cleanse me, wash me, purge me. God, I pray, let your blood just cover my life, cover my mind, cover my heart, Jesus. I pray, forgive me of my sins. Forgive me, you say, that all that's in the world is the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. All three of those things are present in me at times. So God, forgive me of the lust of the flesh. Forgive me of the lust of the eyes. Forgive me of my pride, God. Cover me in the blood, Jesus. Lord, I want to get closer to you. I want to draw near to your presence, but I know I cannot do that. 
I cannot do that if I skip the altar. I can't do that if I don't lay myself down right here. I know I haven't walked this way long enough or done so many things in ministry that I don't need a Savior or I've done enough or I've reached a pinnacle. No, God, I am still reminded as I come into my time of prayer every day, I'm reminded that the first and biggest piece of furniture in this journey with you is the sacrifice that you made and the sacrifice you're calling me to make. I want to lay myself down, God, because I don't think that I'm conceited enough to say, oh, I can make it through. I'm just going to walk right into the holy of holies. Hey, God, how's it going, man? Good to talk to you. No, 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 no. I got to stop at the altar and say, God, forgive me. God, cleanse me in your blood. God, forgive me. Please help me. Thank you for Calvary. Think about that. It was never pleasant to linger at an altar. I mean, imagine the Middle Eastern desert sun beating down on you. You have an altar where a fire is supposed to be going all the time. And then all of a sudden, you're, you're trying to lift. Imagine a, lifting a bull. Hey, man, could I get some help over here? Trying to lift the sacrifice up onto the altar and, and throw it on up there. And then all of a sudden, you're doing the thing with the blood, spilling the blood out. You're walking around and your sandals are bare feet. You want to know why they had foot washing in those days? Imagine someone coming into your house with dust and blood and nasty animal guts on their feet. And you're walking around and then you take the other rest of the body and you burn it outside the camp. Do you know what that probably looked like? Do you know what that probably smelled like? Some of those people, no doubt, wanted to get in there, take care of the religious stuff, and get out of there as fast as they could. Ooh, that still happens today. I want to get in and do the religious stuff and get out as fast as I can. It probably was not fun to linger at the altar. The flesh did not enjoy Lingering at the altar. Because the altar is the site of some ugly things. Some things that stink. But as believers, when we linger in an altar, the biggest piece of furniture in the tabernacle, God, I need to linger here because I know how important the blood is. I know how desperately I need the blood in my life. Your blood is still so rich and so alive. Hovering at this altar with a mess is never pleasant, but it's a requirement. Joshua, when everyone else went home, he stuck around. He stuck around. Oh, I want to be a leader. I want to... I want to do this, I want to do that. How much time do you spend at the altar? It might stink. What kind of a mess are you going to bring God tonight? Oh, it might be a mess. It might stink. It might look bad. Oh, I don't want to look. If I stay at the altar too long, then, then I look bad. I wonder what he's struggling with. Go ahead and think. Do whatever you want. I want to linger at the altar. When I lay at the altar and I stick around and I watch the fire of God burn it up, then I can continue. Next time we get together in two weeks, we'll look at the place of washing and cleansing. No one here is without sin or wrongdoing. If you've never sinned, if you have no sin, you don't struggle with sin, you never sin, you're a perfect human, you're dispensed. Have a good night. There's not a human being here who's far enough along that they don't need an altar. If you are here and you're feeling like you don't need an altar, remember when I said all that's in the world is lust of the flesh, lust in the eyes, and the pride of life? You're struggling with the pride of life. Because Acts 3.19 says, 
Now repent of your sins and turn to God so that your sins might be wiped away. That's it. I mean, he makes it sound so easy. We sometimes take repentance for granted. Luke 13, 3 and 5. He said, repent, you all are like wise perish. Oh, wow, yeah, I guess so, so repentance is a big thing. Hey, all you need to do is just, uh, just you know, repent and let your sins be washed away. Oh, man. Peter said unto them, repent and be baptized. And everyone, and just repent. It's just kind of passed around. They just repent, repent. Except repent, you need to repent. Make sure you repent. It's kind of like going to a fast food place. And they're like, hey, do you need a straw? Yeah. Oh, yeah, give me a straw, you know. Unless you're in California, then, then they're going to give you straws. But I mean, like, it's just this, this yeah, you just grab it. Just, yeah, just absolutely grab it. Just repent. One word. I don't, other than Jesus, I almost think there's not one word that's more powerful in the Bible, a single word. I've never really thought about that. Just repent, 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 repent. It's just one word. And sometimes we hear like that and we're like, oh yeah, I repented before I got baptized. I hope those guests come on Sunday and they'll repent. Now what about us? Notice he didn't say, once you throw the sacrifice on and watch that burn and carry it outside and skip the altar next week. Just jump right into the, just go right to the tent and meeting, right into the holy place. That wasn't the plan. What do I need to do to be saved? Peter tells us, but that didn't mean never repent again. Why? Because... All that's in the world is still less flesh, less the eyes, pride of life. And we still have this nature that we need to crucify daily. And so, we just use this word repent. We toss it around. We throw it around. Yeah, repent, repent, repent. But let us never forget the blood that was shed and the price that was paid to be able to write one word. Just one word. And have that word be so filled with an impact and grace and love and mercy that we could be sitting on pews tonight and I can say, all right, let's come to the altar and repent. when I say that, I'm saying, hey, my Savior loved you so much that he took on flesh, dwelt among us so that he could purchase us with his blood, have the beard plucked and skin ripped off his back, nailed to a cross so that blood could literally run, probably like unlike we have ever seen from a human being. He was marred, his visage was marred more than any other man. He was beyond the point of human recognition. They hung a mutilated body on a wooden stick and blood just ran down the hill. And he did that no doubt because it was from the foundation of the world that as he hung on the cross, as God manifest in flesh, there's no doubt in my mind that faces like ours flashed in his brain as the pain and agony built in his human body. Also that when we made a living sacrifice, he became the sacrifice so we could be a living sacrifice, have access to his presence and find a place where we can come on a daily basis and say, God, humanity got out of control. I made bad choices. God, I got off track somewhere. I, 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 I disobeyed you. I rebelled against you, God. I don't deserve to go into the holiest of holies today, but then you told me to come boldly, and so I'm here again. And I'm laying myself on the altar of sacrifice again. Forgive me. Forgive me, God. Cleanse me, Lord. I'm sorry. I, I want to live for you, God. I want, I want your blood to still be powerful enough to forgive me again. I did it again, God. Forgive me. Create in me a clean heart. Renew a right spirit inside of me. Cast me not out of your presence. Restore the joy of my salvation, God. Once again, I'm just 
I'm just here asking, please forgive me. Help me. Repent. Repent. So yeah, I think that that's key every day that we pray. To remember not only that there was a Savior, but our need for that Savior. And so tonight, I invite you, maybe you, I, I normally I call everybody to the front. You're welcome to come to the front. You might want to just drop right where you are. But right now, build an altar. Build an altar where you are. Come to the front, whatever you want to do. But certainly, certainly don't forget the blood. Don't forget Calvary. Don't underestimate it. Don't take it for granted. Let that be in your prayer every day.